So, all right. Hello once again to all of y'all, all of our listeners out there in points throughout the Cotton Belt from California to the Carolinas. We are back with this, the 20th Nice Round Number episode of the world-famous Cotton Companion podcast, uh, fresh back from our uh, July 4th festivities here in Memphis, or I stayed in Memphis. I actually um, ran in a scorching hot 5K on Friday. It was Friday evening. It started at 7. It was still like 90-some-odd degrees out there, so it was a very hot weekend here in Memphis. I nearly fell out. Jim here packed the family up like the Griswolds and uh, ventured out on a road trip, didn't y'all? Isn't that right? We did indeed, and uh, you know, headed headed north to the family, uh, to the to my wife's family farm uh, up in Illinois, uh, where it was nice and cool and cloudy. I think the, uh, the highs for the day were, were 68. So I obviously oh thought about you on on the on <laughs> over the weekend, you know, and and you know my uh, you know my my you you have my my you know not really gratitude but you have my admiration for you know for getting out in you know in all of this heat and humidity and and trying to run a 5k so uh my hat's off to you and to to everybody else who who survived but yeah it was it was a it was a a a holiday of extremes yeah well to be sure i did a lot of walking it was a it was a part walking 5k on my part um so yeah uh today is wednesday july 6th uh, we know that it's all happening out there in the Cotton Belt. You guys are well and truly into the season now. Um, we know that you're out there making applications when you're necessary. You're putting water on where necessary. I was actually out, uh, I guess, two weeks ago now in the upper Gulf Coast region over there in Texas. I was actually just about 45 minutes south of Houston, although with Houston sprawl, it doesn't ever feel like you're out of the city. Uh, I feel for those guys down there who are farming and driving their tractors through all sorts of new red lights each year as the city comes out encroaching on them but anyhow um was down there a part of the cotton belt that that i feel like i don't get to enough as much cotton as there um i need to i need we need to be over there more often than we are but one thing those guys are telling me they were dealing with this year jim um and i know i already told you a little bit about it was just all this rain that they've gotten down there and Mm -hmm. they you know those guys will plant in march and um, I think someone told me he planted in mid-March and had set something like 22, 24 inches of rain on his farm uh, since that time. So just been a an incredibly wet season, and it's caused all sorts of you know problems that you that you wouldn't think about. Uh, sort of unique problems for these guys there. It hadn't ruined, you know, their their crop looks fine uh, for the most part, but it's just made things just thrown some unique curveballs at them. One of those things. Um, one little side effect that they're seeing. You know, I was actually there, uh, in full disclosure, at a, at a Monsanto field day, and there were a lot of, uh, or Delta Pine field day. I should, no, it was Monsanto because they were talking corn and, and some other stuff, um, sorghum and whatnot. But these guys, the cotton guys, at the at the at one of the cotton plots that they were at, they kept asking these questions about PGR applications. And I know it's that time of the year for a lot of the guys out there one of the things they were running into, it's, it's almost exclusively dry land out there. And so with this rain that they've had, you know, along the same row, in the same field on one row, you know, there'll be a height differential of a foot or over a foot in the plant height from one end to the other. So they, they naturally, 
they're trying to figure out how best to put on uh, PGR in that scenario. That is a long-winded way of saying we are going to bring in uh, the uh, a PGR expert, or at least a cotton expert who wrote an article just this past week about PGR applications, um, and that is Dr. Tyson Raper, who is the new cotton specialist with University of Tennessee Extension. So we're excited to have him. He's always super nice to us. Jim here is a Tennessee guy, so I know that uh, a University of Tennessee guy and a Tennessee State, he's from the state as well. But uh, anyhow, I know that Jim always likes having Tyson around, and so we're, we're happy to have him join us. We will bring that to you later. First, though, we've got a great show lined up for you. Like always, we're going to start with Jim here leading a brief discussion about the latest breaking cotton news from around the from from around the globe, including the USDA planting acres report, planted acres report that just came out the the last day of June thirty. What June thirtieth? That's correct. Yeah, so a week ago now, we know that that had is going to have some some wide-ranging impact on the markets and, and uh, on the cotton industry here in the U.S. So we want to talk about that for a little bit. We're also going to be talking crop progress, crop conditions, and uh, all those things that you guys are dealing with out there. So uh, we got, a, we got a, a busy one lined up for you today. We want you to stick around with us through this break, and uh, we will be that, back with that and more right after this. Cotton Grower Magazine has the honor of saluting exceptional sacrifice and contribution to the cotton industry through our annual Cotton Grower Cotton Achievement Award. Since 1970, Cotton Grower has handed out this distinguished honor to one individual who demonstrates tireless dedication to the cotton industry through involvement, innovation, and leadership in those issues that have a large impact on U.S. cotton as a whole. Achievement Award winners are chosen after extensive research and thoughtful input from around the industry. Cotton Grower offers sincere gratitude to Case IH and to Delta Pine for sponsoring the Cotton Grower Cotton Achievement Award. In joining the effort to recognize and honor industry leaders, these companies demonstrate their devotion to the cotton industry and their desire to see growers succeed. Well, welcome back. As, as Beck said, we're going to get into the newsy part of, uh, of today's podcast. And we're going to start that with the, uh, the first acreage report that USDA released last Thursday, which was June 30th. Uh, and that, that sound you may have heard that afternoon was a collective raising of eyebrows throughout the cotton industry when USDA sh- came out with their, uh, their number of 10 million acres of planted cotton in 2016, which is a, a 17% above 17% increase over last year. Uh, I say raised eyebrows because a lot of people in the industry uh, were looking at it thinking uh, the number's not going to be that high. When you go back to March, the end of March, uh, when USDA brought out the, or released their projected plantings number, that number was only just a shade over 9.5 million acres. Uh, and I think a lot of people are sitting here right now wondering where this extra 460 plus thousand acres came from and, and where it's going. Uh, but USDA has its formula that they follow. Uh, it may or may not be based in reality, but it's probably close. Uh, we know there are some areas that, uh, that the acres probably just aren't going to be as high, but when you look at the report overall of the 17 cotton producing states that they surveyed, 13 of those states are showing acreage increases for this year. Uh, North Carolina, South Carolina, and Virginia numbers 
are down. Uh, New Mexico acres uh, pretty much remain steady from 2015 to, to this year. So we'll see how all this plays out uh, as we move through the season uh, and into harvest. It's, uh, it's still early, and we're going to get into that. We'll talk about that a little bit in the crop conditions report. Um, for, the, for the most recent report that was issued July 3rd, uh, obviously, we're no longer talking about acres planted because everything should be in the ground at this point. Uh, but let's look at, at some of the squaring numbers. Cotton squaring at this point is showing 42% of the crop across 15 states is now squaring. That's a 13% jump over the past week. And, uh, and when you look at the states, we have six states at this point that are running ahead of their five-year average for uh, for the squaring numbers, so you know the the crop in, in, in overall is is moving quickly at this point. Bowl set, we've just started to get some reports on that. At this point, uh, for this week, we're looking at 11% of the crop is already starting to set bowls. Uh, I would say the vast majority of that comes in Arizona and Arkansas, uh, some out of Alabama and Georgia and Louisiana, uh, areas that you would probably expect at this point uh, so we'll keep an eye on that number as we move through the next couple of weeks but the uh, I think the key here is the cotton condition report and we've been tracking this over the last several weeks and really and truly there's been very little change in the cotton conditions at this point the crop conditions we're now we're still setting at 56 percent is either rated good or excellent 36 percent is rated fair and only eight percent falls into that poor very poor category. Uh, as we move obviously into the heat of the summer and as, uh, as insect and other issues start mounting, we'll, uh, we'll see how those conditions hold up. But right now we're off to a, a really, really good start. Yeah, we, um, I wasn't over here playing on my phone. I, was, I couldn't recall what we projected back in January when you started talking about acreage. And we had just a shade under 9.1 million. Right. So this is pretty much 10 mil, or rather 10% increase over what our survey suggested mm-hmm. and if i recall we were pretty close to what the council we were was pretty close to what the council projected mm-hmm. uh, you know in in spite of some of the questionable math that two journalism majors can you know can come up with you know i think we we felt we feel pretty good that we were right in the ballpark yeah well we felt good about being in the ballpark with what the council projected for sure um mm-hmm. because we know that they run a, a pretty thorough a very thorough survey i should say um Man, ten percent more. That's. I mean, that's. I don't know what to think about that number that just came out last week. I I was out of the office a bunch last week, and didn't really get to kind of ruminate on it. But I mean, it's good for. I mean, if you're Cotton Grower Magazine, it's good. You know, you want mm-hmm. more acres in the belt. Um. I think the you know one of the things that was going to help prices come out of this. You know, dragging in the 60s was going to be reduced acreage worldwide, and so we don't want to jump the gun and jump out there with a, with bukus of acres. But really, I don't know that 10 percent more than what we did last year is going to move the needle one way or the other. No, and I, I think you can sit back and look at it a couple of ways. I think last year, at this point, USDA was you know was projecting their projected acres for last year were just a shade over 10 million, and uh, and we ended up planting. Just about four to five hundred thousand acres less because of weather issues, crop abandonment. Uh, you know, people just not in a, not in a position to get 
get to crop in the ground yeah. for one reason or the other. I think it was either even fewer than that, wasn't it? Planted in 15? Right. It was like eight and 8.5 or right. was that harvested that I'm thinking of? No, it was. Uh, it was. It was 8.5. Yeah. 8.56 yeah. million planted last year. So to a certain extent, you wonder if um, if you're looking at the acres that were abandoned last year and just adding those back into the mix along with pickups from here and there with other crop rotations uh you know i can i can see where the number comes from yeah um i guess we'll find out in uh you know this fall when the harvested acres report comes out just how close how close they really really were yeah i know real quickly i feel like i've told you this before on occasion and you know this jim but for the audience's sake we will have to go up to talk to some of the ad agencies who represent some of these uh, big ag companies. And the ag companies, of course, themselves are, to be sure, these guys who, you know, your representative in the field from these big ag companies are a thousand times more knowledgeable about agriculture. You know, I, I'm learning from those guys every day. But their ad agencies oftentimes are, you know, these uh, uh, guys in think tanks, guys and gals, uh, up in you know uh, Chicago or um, oh where is it that I go in Wisconsin uh, Milwaukee Milwaukee or you know and and they are learning about agriculture so they bring you know the editors of Cotton Grower Magazine in they look at us as experts in our field and so we we are supposed to educate these folks on what's going on in the market and for a couple of years as I was doing these tours speaking to these ad agency folks many of whom have never you know set foot in the cotton belt some of whom haven't. And uh, a big thing they want to know about is acreage, right? And so two years ago, I go in there and, I, and I, you know, I'm feeling very smart, feeling like I'm a, just an expert of the industry. I say, here's the window that acreage is going to fall under. You know, it's on a roller coaster, but it'll never go below 10 million, never go higher than 13 million for the foreseeable <laughs> future. And I mean, um, two months later, the bottom uh, fell out. That, well, these wintertime predictions come out, mm-hmm. projections of acreage, and it's like 9.18, it wound up being 8.5. And I kind of look like, you know, this is all in writing, these things that I've told, <laughs> that, that I've told these ad agency folks, like, you know, they have my handwriting, literally, in some cases, saying that it would never go that low. So it's good for me to see us get back in on a totally selfish and personal level. It's good that we're getting back in that window that I projected two years ago, now that I've been wrong for two straight he's, years. He's starting to feel good about being able to show his face in public again. <laughs> is that what you're saying? Yeah, exactly. You know. <laughs> A broken clock's right two but, times a day. Yeah, right? but 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 I don't I don't know that anybody in in the industry, you know, and, and probably the folks who are listening to us at this point, you know, I think everybody recognizes the the fluctuations in this market and the cycles it goes through, and this cycle right now just seems to be taking a little bit longer than yeah. uh, than it has in the past. You know, with with some other extenuating aspects attached to it. Yeah. All right. Let's let's move on. Uh, and get through the through these news items. Just a couple quick quick things. Uh, National Cotton Council uh, had a leadership delegation in China uh, late last month. To uh, they were over there sharing information with the Chinese cotton textile industries and giving them updates on the U.S. cotton industry. Uh, this was the seventh time that the uh, U.S. cotton industry sent a delegation to China since uh, they worked together to put together the U.S.-China Cotton Leadership Exchange Program, and that's a joint program uh, of the National Cotton Council and the China Cotton Association. Uh, that, that deal was, uh, was put in place in 2006. Uh, that basically promises cooperation between the two countries' cotton industries. 
now, while they were there, obviously, uh, they heard presentations from just about every Chinese organization uh, or association attached to cotton uh, in Beijing and in other parts of, uh, of China that I simply cannot pronounce. Um, oh, you can give it a shot. No, 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 not a chance. <laughs> not with, no, not when it has every letter in the alphabet <laughs> in it. Uh, but basically, it, it concluded with an agreement between, uh, continuing the agreement between the Cotton Council and the uh, China Cotton Textile Association uh, to uh, continue to, to communicate. Uh, and again, with a focus on quality, they're going to look at opportunities to jointly promote both U.S. raw cotton and U.S. manufactured yarn, as well as Chinese cotton, in an effort to uh, combat the growing competition from synthetic fibers. Uh, this was, it was a fairly, you know, I'm sure it's a very productive meeting. Uh, the delegation was headed up by uh, NCC Chairman Shane Stevens, who, uh, who works with Staple Cotton Association down in Greenwood, Mississippi. Uh, and he had some, uh, some pretty heavy hitters with him on, on, this, on this trip. Uh, William Barksdale, who's with Cargill Cotton, uh, uh, Plains Cotton Cooperative Association President and CEO Kevin Brinkley out of Lubbock, uh, National Cotton Jenners Association First Vice President David Blakemore, uh, from up in in, uh, in Campbell, Missouri, and uh, several cotton growers: uh, Sonny Davis out of Florida, uh, Patrick Johnson out of Tunica, Mississippi, Doyle Schneier, I believe it's Schneiers out of San Angelo, Texas. Schneers. Schneers. I met those guys. Okay. He and his brother at field day before. And uh, and Greg Wirtz out of uh, out of Arizona. So, uh, congratulations to those folks on a uh, on a successful trip, and uh, and hopefully we'll keep our fingers crossed on. Uh, uh, continuing cooperation between the countries. Um, moving ahead, uh, something that, that a number of people I know in the Mid-South are aware of and, and probably uh, several throughout the Cotton Belt, but Monsanto, uh, within the past month, has made a donation to the B.F. Smith Foundation, which is a nonprofit organization down in the Mississippi Delta. And their donation basically is 150-acre, their 150-acre Leland, Mississippi Agronomy Center. Uh, that's that's cropland. That's all the supporting infrastructure, including offices, labs, greenhouses, and shops. Uh, the Mississippi State University Delta Research and Extension Center in Stoneville, Mississippi, is going to be using the greenhouse and the lab space for plant breeding and other research. And the site's also going to they're also going to be working with local school districts to support a STEM education program that's science, technology, engineering, and math uh, for students in the area. Um, I've been to that facility. It's a really impressive facility in terms of, uh, uh, of training and meetings and, uh, and just some of the research they've done there. Uh, our hats off to Monsanto for, uh, you know, for passing that, that facility on to, uh, you know, to the folks in the, in the area uh, as they look toward, uh, as they look toward moving, I believe a lot of their, their cotton research and, and, seed technologies and seed cleaning and processing out to the Lubbock area. Yeah. Uh, to be sure, as I said earlier, I was at this field day uh, just outside of Houston last week. It was a Monsanto field day, and, and a lot of those growers, a lot of Delta Pine growers, you know, the company does a really good job of bringing growers from around the belt into that Scott facilities sometimes during the summer just to show them how things go there. And um, a lot of them are very familiar with the Scott Learning Center. Mm-hmm. And uh, they were convinced, say, y'all, you know, you guys aren't, y'all haven't donated that place. You know, a lot of folks are very familiar with that little building there on the campus. 
a Delta Pine and Scott. It's not that building that's being donated. It's uh, it's a different one. So if you guys are looking to come back to beautiful metropolis of Scott, Mississippi, <laughs> you will you will still find the same hospitable buildings that you visited last time. This, Absolutely. So. Absolutely, Scott. Scott, Mississippi, great facility. Sort of a it's sort of a living museum. The whole town is. The really. whole town is absolutely. <laughs> it's, it's a step back. Um, absolutely, and just one last item, just as a reminder. Uh, today is July sixth, as we have duly noted. Um, the sign up for the Cotton Ginning Cost Share Program is well underway. It's been underway for about uh, two and a half weeks, um, and. If you uh, if you're an eligible cotton grower, you have until August 5th to sign up for this program uh, at your local FSA office. Uh, you can receive a one-time cost share payment based on your 2015 cotton acres as reported to FSA, multiplied by 40% of the average ginning cost for each production region. And I think we went through all of the the numbers on that in our last podcast. And you can certainly still find that information on our website at cottongrower.com. Uh, payments are going to be processed as, as applications are received, and those payments are expected to start moving back to growers' hands uh, sometime here in the, within the next few weeks, certainly by mid mid to late July. So again, at this point, you are less than one month away from, uh, from the deadline on sign-up. There will be no extensions on this program, so if you haven't taken, taken an opportunity to do so, please get out, visit your FSA office, and get signed up for this program. Yeah, don't let don't let that deadline slip up on you guys. Um, if you're like me and wait till the last minute, you may find yourself in trouble. So, uh, Jim, we appreciate that as always. We are going to hold you up right there. We want to take a quick break. Uh, we want you to hang around with us through this music break, and when you come back, we're going to have an interview with University of Tennessee Extension Cotton Specialist, Dr. Tyson Raper. So stick around. We'll be talking about PGR applications and and a bunch of other production-oriented stuff. Stay with us, and we will be right back. Okay, so we are joined now by a good friend of the magazine, a guy who picks up the phone every time we uh, probably sometimes annoyingly call on him because we do it so often. We're with Dr. Tyson Raper. He is uh, with University of Tennessee Extension. He's the cotton specialist out there now. I was going to say the new cotton specialist, but how long have you been in that position, Tyson? Over two years now, so the news wearing off. The news is wearing off just a little bit, yeah. So uh, Tyson uh, just recently wrote a piece on PGR. We were just getting settled in this week, coming back from July 4th. And uh, anytime I've been out in the field over the past couple of weeks, guys are talking about PGR management. And I sat down at my desk this morning, and Jim uh, forwarded me a link to something that you had written, Tyson, about some sort of PGR best management practices for you guys in Tennessee. Can you give me kind of the Cliff's notes of this thing that you just wrote this past week? I can, but so as we get into flower, and, and most of our acres in Tennessee are at or very close to flowering, we really need to think about managing plant height. Uh, it's not as big of a concern prior to flower for most varieties, uh, but it is something that we need to start considering uh, on almost every acre, uh, given our really strong start to the 2016 season. So very 
briefly what uh, I kind of outlined in that article, we have a large number of very new varieties that we haven't really seen uh, on a great number of acres before. And when we start managing uh, plant growth or, or plant height structure of a new variety, we've got to be really careful to make sure we only apply enough and we don't over apply, uh, shutting the plant down and preventing the middles uh, from being covered with plant material or, or laughing. So one of the things that I talked uh, quite a bit about in that article uh, are the differences we're seeing in some of our newer varieties. We kind of classify uh, our varieties based on responsiveness. Uh, some are very responsive, some are, I'd say, responsive to moderately responsive, and then some are fairly non-responsive. And those are the ones, the, the least responsive ones are the ones that we really have to be careful to make sure we get enough plant growth regulator on uh, to prevent them from uh, growing rank. I gotcha. So I guess if I'm if I'm a grower out there this year, Tyson, and I'm seeing, you know, I'm staring at 60 cent prices all year long and I'm, you know, my margins are, are thin and, I, and I'm looking to save a penny here and there where I can, would I be better served maybe not trying to hit my crop with as many shots of PGR, you know, in a year like this, or is this not something I should skimp on? This is, this is definitely not something that you, you should skimp on, but I'll tell you, management, in my opinion, of plant growth has kind of changed in the past several years. You know, uh, our, our PGRs, have, uh, they're, they're quite cheap, uh, relatively speaking. Uh, after they were introduced, they were quite expensive. Uh, now, uh, it's not uh, uh, too expensive to, to make a plant growth regulator application. When before we were really trying to manage plant growth very early in the season because it took uh, only a very small amount of plant growth regulator uh, early in the season compared to a large amount uh, to control growth late in the season. Now we have a little more freedom to operate. Doesn't cost as much to make that heavier application late. The reason that we've really seen a shift, and, and I think it's a justified shift in my opinion, to maybe a little bit heavier hand later in the season as opposed to uh, a moderate application early is lapping the middles ha has become extremely important, right? We want to make sure that we reduce the amount of sunlight that's hitting bare soil and that could potentially uh, uh, support uh, weed growth and, and calmer management and trying to, trying to lap the middles and reduce sunlight that the soil is intercepting has become a big issue. And that, I think if, if you look across the Mid-South, you may see a little shift later in the season, uh, a little bit heavier applications being made. And, and one of the reasons, again, not only PGR costs, but really Palmer management. So what I tried to talk about in this article specifically is really emphasizing you don't want to hit a, a, a very determinate variety early, let's say, with a pint of, of, of a methyl crop chloride and prevent that plant from lapping the middles. One of the other concerns we have uh, applying a, a large amount to a relatively determinate or, or early maturing variety, uh, uh, if, if, you, if you lock it up, if it's, if it's drought stressed, you can really lock that plant up 
you can halt uh, plant growth almost all together, and then you, you may never lap the middles, and you can actually reduce yields with, with too heavy of a shot early in the season. Tyson, this is, this is Jim. Um, we've heard reports from different parts of the Mid-South about um, varying plant heights in rows, you know, in, in the same field. Uh, how are you seeing some of that up in your area, and, and how can growers best manage that to try to even the crop out here as we're moving into this pretty critical period? We were pretty fortunate in Tennessee. Uh, we did have several uh, acres of replant over the river, and I think the closer you get uh, to northwest Tennessee, you begin to see some of those less than consistent stands. It's a very difficult uh, question to answer. Uh, you can't really vary plant growth regulator using small areas of the field. And you, you definitely, if you have adjacent plants that are different plant heights, it's going to be very difficult to manage those two plants differently. What we really have to, uh, we have to set a goal, right? We have to determine what, which area do I, I want to try to uh, manage for and, and then pursue that that goal. I definitely would not manage the entire field uh, based on uh, the latest planted or, or the, the, the latest germinated. I definitely wouldn't manage it on the earliest germinated. Try to pick middle of the road and manage that whole field based on, on the mean, if you will. That's going to give us the best approach, uh, the, the best uh, end goal uh, at the end of the year. Okay. One, one more question that I have for you. Uh, we're about at that point in the season where maybe some of our early fertilizer applications are starting to wear out. Uh, are you starting to see some stress on the plants, some plants looking for a little bit more nutrients than, uh, than maybe they're getting at this point? And, and is it time to look at, uh, at some other fertilizer, some side dress or, or foliar application? I, I've, I've received several calls in the past few days on uh, some deficiency that we're beginning to see. It's actually kind of surprising in this year uh, that we're actually seeing some sulfur deficiencies. We've had a pretty warm spring and a, a warm, uh, relatively dry spring. Uh, most would uh, suspect that you would have organic matter break down and sulfur become available. Uh, but we are beginning to see uh, sulfur deficiencies, and that's, that's a uh, question I've fielded several uh, times in the past few weeks. We can still impact our yield with a, with a soil applied application of ammonium sulfate uh, in, in the flower. Uh, given that that application uh, receives a rain and moves into uh, the, the active root zone, uh, we can still increase our yields or ameliorate that deficiency with a soil applied ammonium sulfate application. Now, the window is closing very, very quickly. And I actually, I actually made it. Uh, short blog uh, article on that news.utcrops website uh, today about sulfur. Uh, but we're, we're very quickly moving into a time frame where if we're going to address uh, a nutrient deficiency in the crop, we're going to have to be looking at a foliar application. What uh, I would encourage you to do uh, as a producer or consultant trying to recommend the best uh, foliar uh, for uh, uh, production, look at nutrient concentration. That's that's really what you're paying for should be nutrient concentration and not other additives. And there was a really nice article that was uh, written in Arkansas just a couple of weeks ago uh, kind of talking about 
uh, when foliars pay and, and when they may not pay. Uh, you mentioned 60 cent time earlier. Uh, that this, this is uh, uh, one of those uh, ways that uh, the margins can be soaked up pretty quickly if we start applying uh, a lot of value-added uh, foliar products. So really want to focus on nutrient concentration. If you have a deficiency out there, it needs to be addressed. Uh, there are a number of extension publications uh, published on uh, how to address nitrogen, potassium, sulfur, uh, Try to use foliar-grade products, but really focus on nutrient concentration and not so much some of the other additives that may or may not be available at your retail. Very good. You know, Tyson, I'm, I'm at my desk as I'm interviewing you here, and, and I just pulled up the y'all's website. That's news.utcrops.com. And sure enough, I think the first article here is something you just referenced, updated sulfur recommendations for cotton that you've written. So. You know, th this website's really a wealth of uh, information for somebody like me, you know, who relies so much on, on the expertise that you extension guys provide, but I know it'd be helpful for our listeners too. So that's news.utcrops.com if y'all would like to read some of uh, Tyson's recommendations. A lot of them are housed there. So, man, I appreciate you calling and checking in with us. Uh, I know you're busy this time of year, and I'm, and I'm sure you are as hot as can be out there. We hope you're staying hydrated. <laughs> Thanks, Dave. Hey, man, we appreciate you, and we will be back in touch soon. Okay, well, that'll just about do it uh, for this installment of the Cotton Companion Podcast. We want to thank uh, Dr. Tyson Raper again for joining us today. And we want to thank you sincerely for joining us. Um, if you like what you're hearing, by all means, tell your buddies about us. Tell us about, tell them rather, about the Cotton Companion podcast. And in doing so, if they say, well, how do I find that thing? You tell them that you, they can do it in three easy ways. Number one, go to cottongrower.com. That's our website. And search for the Cotton Companion in the search bar at the top of the homepage there. It should bring you to a landing page that has all 20 now of our episodes and you can choose sort of by headline that sort of gives you an idea of what topic we discuss in each one which you want to listen to it's a library of everyone we've ever done there so um you know you can you can find hours of listening entertainment on that one page as you are twiddling thumbs in the cab of the tractor this summer um the second way you can find our podcast is by subscribing to our channel on iTunes. Uh, if you're familiar with iTunes, you got you a, a smartphone, a, a iPhone, uh, you can just go ahead, open up your podcast app and subscribe to our channel, the Cotton Companion channel. And uh, once you've done that, you can leave us a rating. That's what we really like you to do. Let us know what you think of our pod, what you think is good, what you think is bad. We want to hear all of it. The third and for me, best way to make sure you receive each installment of the Cotton Companion podcast is to sign up for our weekly e-newsletter. This is an email that hits your uh, inboxes every Tuesday morning like clockwork. Uh, Jim here works hard to pack that thing with all of the relevant news of the day. And like I say, they're very timely. They hit your email inbox every Tuesday morning. Occasionally, as we get later into the season, you'll find them there on Thursday mornings too. But each one of those has the most recent episode of Cotton Companion Podcast included therein. Um, you can sign up by once again going to the homepage, our website, the homepage of our website, cottongrower.com. 
Scroll to the bottom of the page and you will find a link there to subscribe to our e-newsletter. Finally, please make sure you're following us on social media. Uh, on Twitter, I meant to tweet this, by the way, earlier this week, because we are at seven. We are at 1,730 Twitter followers, which is wonderful. I love that we're, we're growing, we're gaining followers every day. I wanted to see if in honor of July 4th, we couldn't get that number up to 1776, right? See if we could do that. The day came and went. It's like I'm going to bed on July 4th night and a light bulb went off. Oh, I forgot to do that. So anyhow, hey, it's still July 4th week. If you are feeling especially patriotic, you can show that patriotism by <laughs> getting us to 1776 followers. Or beyond, if you could. Or beyond. There you go. Yes. Even better. Uh, that's at Cotton Grower Mag on Twitter is where you can find us there. On Facebook, even easier to find us. Just type Cotton Grower Magazine in the search bar. And you should see our logo pop up next to our Facebook page. I don't think there are any imposter cotton grower magazine sites out there, but you never do know. Uh, we hope that you're enjoying our latest issue, which would have been the June-July issue. Actually, is that hit mailboxes? It should be hitting mailboxes this week. Very good. Yes, you guys will uh, enjoy that one. If you haven't seen it yet, keep an eye out for it. Uh, and then the next one we'll have out to you will be August-September. It's a little... We have combined issues, so there's a little break between this one and the next one you'll see, which will be the first week of September. But not to worry, we'll keep you, uh, we'll keep in touch on the website and via this here podcast. This podcast is produced by Mr. Mark Antonelli. He works at the Mothership Meister Media Worldwide in lovely Willoughby, Ohio. My name is Beck Barnes, and I will be back with you in two weeks for the next episode of the Cotton Companion. For now. On behalf of my own cotton companion, Mr. Jim Stebman, we wish you and your operation all the best. <laughs>